0: Where there's smoke, welcome. To the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com and Jeremy's work, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com and Express News down in uh, San Antonio at expressnews.com. I want to thank everybody who has now pushed us past $25,000 in the annual Leukemia Lymphoma Society fundraiser uh, here in Central Texas. Uh, you can donate as well about one more week of that uh, at uh, scottbraddock.com. It's just my name. scottbraddock.com is where you can get the link to donate. So many people have stepped up and I really do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart coming up next week, Jeremy, we will put a bow on this legislative session. you described it as when we were off the air, you described it as you know a happier place come Tuesday, right when we're when we're past all this, but there's concertina wire and um, you know, Uh, The the tripwires everywhere before we can get there. Uh, A lot left to settle up before this legislative session is over. And I think next week on the show, we will do the rundown of basically everything we've talked about for the last five months and get into how things ended up. I think that's the way we should handle that, wrap it all up, put a bow on top. It's gone, right? Now, this week, there's really only two things I want to talk about. So I'm going to consider this and I'm going to name it a special edition of the texas take two huge things um that just are occupying almost all of my you know brain capacity at the moment one is an historic moment in this state this just doesn't happen um almost ever i think for a statewide official to be impeached you got to go back to governor ferguson am i right on that yep so you, 1917, you on, right and, Go, 1917. You're going back a little ways. Um, the impending impeachment of Ken Paxton, the attorney general, uh, it's just been a breathtaking 72 hours or so, um, you know, as there has been this back and forth between the Republican speaker of the house and the Republican attorney general. This is Republicans policing one of their own, right? And we'll get into all the details. I also want to talk about the anniversary of the shooting in Uvalde I have been thinking about that all week. And as you know, we've talked about it just for a year. It's, it's um, it's really uh, just been so emotionally draining. Um, And, you know, for for us as observers, that's one thing. And then you think about the, what the families have gone through, those who are from Uvalde and the survivors of that. I want to talk about all of that. Well, let's start with this Ken Paxton situation. I published a video On social media this week that got 2 million views, which I didn't expect, but this is Texas politics and the video is a dumpster on fire outside the attorney general's office and the attorney general put out a statement about that video and said that journalists and others should not be speculating about this arson, about this crime. Now, I didn't respond to that, and they did arrest somebody, by the way. I didn't respond to the attorney general, but this is all I would say about it. If journalists are prohibited from covering dumpster fires, we could not cover Texas politics, right? <laughs> now, th- this is this is remarkable. How did this get going? Um, earlier in the week, the general investigating committee of the Texas House was going to meet, and it had been made public they were about to meet, And it's my understanding that the attorney general knew, had some sort of heads up about what they were going to do. And part of what they did, Jeremy, was they issued a subpoena to one person who was not named and to the office of the attorney general, which made my eyebrow go up what's going on here. Now, we have known that there were at least two active investigations by the General Investigating Committee. One of those dealt with former State Representative Brian Slayton, who we talked about previously, uh, who had been accused of having sex with an underage staffer and providing her uh, alcohol, uh, and he was run right out of office. We, We thought maybe that the other investigation had to do with another state representative, one from Houston, who had some allegations against her of a hostile work environment in her office. But it turns out the other investigation was about Ken Paxton, the attorney general. Remarkable. So what so what did what did Paxton do to try to get ahead of this? He issued a statement saying that the Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, the Beaumont Republican, should resign from office because of a video that showed him slurring his speech, and Paxton, without evidence, said that Phelan must have been drunk on the Texas House floor as he was Holding the gavel, you took a close look at those videos, Jeremy. And I don't want to play that here. I'm not going to get into that. Yeah. Um, but it is it fair to say that there was a point in which Phelan was sort of slurring his speech, but in moments prior to that and after that, he was not.
1: Yeah, it's like you know, you know, seconds like before he was mm-hmm. fine, and right. then then there's the you know, the speech sounds slurred, but mm-hmm. it's also like if you watch all of it. Is it that whole night, I watched a lot of it because the whole issue happened to be about you know DEI, an issue mm-hmm. that I've covered obviously yeah. a lot, you know, in mm-hmm. this legislative process. So I watched the whole thing, and the video and the audio kind of was glitchy a lot that night. And so it's like, right. is it was it the video? Was it feeling? Was it like, was it just the, his mannerisms, or was it, I don't know, there's so many questions about it, but to your point. For Ken Paxson, with his uh, magic breathalyzer test from the Attorney General's (laughs) office down the street, he was able to determine (laughs) that Dave Velen was in fact intoxicated right then.
0: (laughs) This is the old trick in politics of watch my thumb, so that you're not (laughs) looking. You're not looking at what's really going on. What was really going on uh, was an investigation that had been underway by the General Investigating Committee for months. It started back in March, uh, and it culminated in, at least for now, in the vote of the committee to recommend impeachment of Paxton. Here is that historic moment. The clerk will call the roll. Chairman? Aye. Vice Chair Johnson? Yes. yes. Representative Heron? Yes. Representative Longoria? Yes. Representative Schiller? Aye. being five eyes, zero nays, zero present not voting, the motion prevails. That's a committee of mostly Republicans voting to impeach the attorney general. Now, why are they doing this? Let's go back to February, because I want to make the point very clear that this didn't just start this week. It seems like the attorney general and his supporters are trying to say that the House is going after him suddenly. And you hear a lot of people, both Republicans and Democrats, asking this question. Why now? Paxton has been dogged by uh, accusations of ethical problems and, and violations of law, including some felonies, felonies plural, for years. He has been under felony indictment for the better part of a decade, right? So why now? Why are Republicans going after him now? Well, you remember back in February, Speaker Phelan took issue with something that Paxton had asked the legislature to do. What was that? Paxton had come to agreement with four people who used to work in his office, some very conservative attorneys, by the way, uh, who had accused Paxton of accepting bribes and doing some favors for a shady developer in Austin of having a... um, a mistress. This was, this was also part of it. Um, And the settlement between Paxton and the folks who should be protected by the state's whistleblower law, the settlement was 3.3 million. That's what was proposed. And so Paxton wasn't going to pay this out of his pocket. Uh, One of the old hands around the Capitol said, oh, if it had been his money, he would never would have agreed to that. It was going to be 3.3 million of your dollars. he He wants taxpayers to pick up the tab. And Phelan said that he did not agree with that. He was uh, talking to CBS 11 uh, up in Dallas-Fort Worth. I don't anticipate that $3.3 million being in the House budget. Mr. Paxson
1: is going to have to come to the Texas House. He's going to have to appear before the Appropriations Committee and make a case to that committee as to why that is a proper use of taxpayer dollars.
0: And then he's going to have to sell it to 76 members of the Texas House. That is is his job, not mine. Do you support it personally? No. You don't? Why not? not? I don't think it's the proper use of taxpayer dollars. Now, at the time, Jeremy, here was my cynical take. I thought that, you know what, maybe taxpayers should be on the hook for that settlement. And here, here was my reasoning. Um, and, you know, I'm sometimes contrarian, right? I thought that, hey, almost all of the allegations against Paxton have been known for years. And people knew about most of these allegations prior to the election in which Paxton was reelected. So voters in Texas... The majority looked the other way, didn't care about it. So who should be on the hook for it? Well, I would think Texans would be on the hook for it. Uh, Obviously, Phelan did not agree with that. Now, no matter what you think of that argument, and I'm not even saying I feel that way anymore, but here's the deal. That request for money is what opened the door for the Texas house to look into Paxton, because what were they trying to figure out? He asked for 3.3 million to settle up with these, uh, whistleblowers. And so the house was looking into what events led up to the firing of these people from Paxton's office who had complained about his alleged illegal behavior. And they hired, uh, some pretty serious heavy hitter, uh, lawyers, Jeremy, uh, to work for this committee over the last few months to try to you know piece it all together. What all did Ken Paxton do? Um, let's give a fun example here. It's kind of fun. This, this should be in a movie. How is it not a movie already? Yeah. You know, a la uh, like Bernie, the, the movie about the guy who uh, killed the lady in East Texas was sort of a Texas monthly style thing. Um, one of the investigators for the committee said during the hearing of the committee this week, That one of the deals that Paxton cut, and you found this particularly amusing, Jeremy, one of the deals he cut was with a CEO, and the place they met to talk about it was Dairy Queen.
1: General Paxton met the CEO at a Dairy Queen. He intended to pay for and to buy the stock, the 100,000 shares. However, the CEO stated that God had directed him to give the stock to Attorney General Paxton, therefore
0: substantiating that it was, in fact, a gift. However, Servergy documents created at or after the issuance of the stock indicate, indicate that the stock was, again, for, quote, services. Jeremy, the question of Servergy, which is supposed to be a technology startup in, I, think, I guess, in North Texas, and I'm trying to remember all the details because I have covered a lot of this over the last decade. Um, there, there was this uh, instance in which Paxton was going around and rounding up investors for this company, and he was being paid by the company to do it. Now, Every bit of that would be legal if you disclose to the potential investors that you're being paid by the company. Correct. If you don't disclose that you're being paid, then that's a felony yep. in Texas, right? Now, you can't make this stuff up. When Ken Paxton was a member of the Texas House, he voted for the bill to make it a felony. Okay, so 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 here you have the chief law enforcement uh, officer of the state involved in basically a scam to. Roundup investors for this company. How do I know? How can I say definitively that he did that? Well, there are two ways you can be punished for this. One is on a civil side where you can just pay a fine and you're good. And on the other end, you might get prosecuted and have to deal with possible jail time. Paxton paid the fine on the civil side. He signed all that documentation admitting that he did everything I just said. right? And yeah. that's what he's been under indictment for, for the better part of a decade, for the last eight years or so going back to when he first came into office as attorney general. And so, here's what I've heard from his supporters this week that this is all old news. This is all rehashed stuff. This is stuff that that doesn't really matter because we knew about this stuff before, kind of like I was making the argument, you know, at the time for maybe just settling up with the whistleblowers and going down the road. But here's what I came to realize this week. It's not old stuff. It's not rehashed stuff. Let let me put it this way. If you had a murder case Let's say a man murders his wife in Houston, which is something that happens now and then. And if it's a crazy murder case, it's probably unfolding in Houston. Let's say it's a football coach from the suburbs in Houston. Not that that ever happened. <laughs> um, if all of the allegations against the person were printed in the newspaper and on television in Houston uh, and were well known six months before, you know, six months before the murder trial. And then you get to the trial, and of course, all those allegations are then repeated, but then they are backed up with evidence. No one would say it was old rehash stuff. It would just be that now you're having the actual proceeding in which there could be accountability for the person who is accused. And that's what's happening with Paxton, because here's the other thing you need to know. The reason it hasn't been to court is because Paxton has done everything in the book. He and his attorneys have done everything to keep that case from ever going to court. Do you remember in Collin County? where Paxton is from, he was going to be tried there. And the county had hired special prosecutors from Houston to come to North Texas and prosecute Paxton. And some of Paxton's Republican allies in the legislature, and they, those those folks probably wouldn't want me to be bringing this up right now, but some of his allies in the legislature, do you remember this? They were texting and the texts were reported in the Dallas Morning News. They were texting with the county judge and the county commissioners there to not pay the special prosecutors. They were trying to defund the prosecution of Paxton. They've done everything in the world to keep this from going to trial, Jeremy, and so now you have the chance for the Texas House to move forward with accountability, and it's because of something Paxton did. He asked them to pick up the tab, he asked you and me to pick up the tab as taxpayers for his settlement with people who he fired after they blew the whistle on his wrongdoing. I mean, at some point, this sounds like it could be a mob movie. Like he's a mob boss with all these allegations against him
1: well and a very texas mob boss right okay so like you know as a, as a veteran of having covered some new york politics you know in the back room of some italian restaurant over in Laguinian clam sauce they're cutting deals and you know working out you know corruption and who's going to hire whose son for what you know it's like literally i watched that happen in in real time here we're doing it over dilly bars and a dairy queen somewhere and who knows where right you know it's like the ultimate texas corruption story it's so simple in so many ways and it's just like in uh, everything about it it's like again it's serious stuff but it's yes. like it's everything you could pack into it it's it's developers you know you know it's you know you know mistresses it's you know in, you know insider trading it's you know it's like all kinds of stuff happening you know it's like wrapped up into this and it's funny you're like it's easy to kind of lose sight of like how serious this is, mm-hmm. and you brought it up. Our attorney general has been like under indictment since the day he took office. It's like right. it's it's been this the whole way. It's a, so th- yeah. There's absolutely a point where you're like, say, well, isn't this old news? Like, yes, uh, it is old news to a degree, but it doesn't mean it's been resolved. Right, uh, and That's the that key. we should just dis- like go okay, well, whatever. You know, it's been right. going on forever. Kind of like it feels very Trumpian, you know, for people to say that. It's like, look, people have known he like he, he you know, was corrupt with the way he dealt with the the hotel up in New York. Right. Mm. It's like it's been for years. Like, you know, why are you bringing that up now? You know, it's just like, well, <laughs> right. no, it's, it, it's this is like we're still in this process of trying to figure out what he did. And now we're being asked to pay for it. And, and and while I I understand your philosophy, you know, there's a point when you were saying, it, I'm thinking, okay, to some degree, the taxpayers, we should pick up this tab because we voted for them again, right? So it's like, we clearly said it was okay for this to continue happening. But then I think, well, there's 30 million people in Texas <laughs> who are paying taxes, you know, into this state. Should all of us really be put on the hook for this? Yeah. You know, it's right. like- that seems absolutely insane. Like we should not be paying, you know, to cover, you know, this case. You know, these whistleblowers who are mm-hmm. sitting there, you know, telling us like all this ridiculousness that's going on around Ken. Pa- Again, and you like the part that drove me most crazy about this is this a- accusation that somehow this is coming from liberals. These were conservatives who were working for Ken Paxton. Very conservative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was gonna. How do how can you underline you know conservative on a podcast, right? Like you know, get a red marker and just write uh, underline it like four or five times. These are super conservatives who were coming out to tell us Ken Paxton is doing some really terrible stuff.
0: Yeah, one of uh, – to, to underscore that, uh, one of the people who blew the whistle on Paxton has dedicated his career to putting uh, – helping to install very conservative judges around the country, right, uh, through one of these groups called First Liberty, and they have some other activism they do. Um, these are people who are – rock rib conservatives. This has nothing to do with ideology, everything to do with allegations of corruption. And, and when you talked about how there were shenanigans going on there, the part about Ken Paxton having a mistress, you would think, okay, well, that's just something that people might throw out there to be salacious. Here was the deal. As alleged by the whistleblowers, he had an affair with a woman who didn't have a job. And so he wanted this developer in Austin To give her a job these are all this is all uh you know alleged by these folks it's all being looked into by the fbi by the way um that he needed his girlfriend to have a job and so he asked this developer if he would put her to work and the developer then just wanted to have some favors done for him including running interference on federal investigations against the developer I mean something. Something that you couldn't again. For, this could be from a movie where the the attorney general is accused of hiring an outside attorney to pretend that he's some that 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 this other attorney is some kind of investigator to get in the way of a federal investigation of this developer. Um, and what kind of things was Paxton getting from the developer? I mean, you know, putting in new countertops in a home, taking two homestead exemptions, which you're not allowed to do, that wasn't to do with the developer, but something that Paxton's accused of. Let me tell you a little story about Paxton that I haven't told before. This is from a source who knew him very well when he was a member of the Texas House years ago. Uh, My friend, uh, and I'll leave the names out protecting the innocent here. My friend went to go visit Paxton in his office to visit with him about an issue and Paxton had a uh, an associate in his office who owned a, a company that makes fire suppression systems of just fire you know sprinklers for for office buildings and Paxton was pushing legislation that was straight up what you call a vendor bill if you read the particulars of the legislation it had to do with contracts for fire suppression systems in state office buildings. And if you read the details, the way that it would work is only his buddy's company would be able to get the contracts to do that. Right. And when my friend went to visit this office, the guy with the fire suppression systems that he was selling those things, he had his glossy literature he was handing out and Paxton and this guy were talking about how great these fire suppression systems are. And, my friend, I think, never really got to talk to Paxton about what the issue was. That he went to talk about, he just got an earful about these fire suppression systems and how Paxton was going to pass this bill to mandate that that this guy's fire suppression systems were used in office buildings uh, that are owned by the state. That again, your taxpayer dollars, right? Um, and my friend's impression was that Paxton didn't necessarily think he was doing anything wrong. He didn't think that he didn't he didn't he didn't get the impression that Paxton thought that he was getting away with something that he actively knew that it was corrupt. He just thought that, and this is again, my friend's impression. He thought that Paxton figured, Hey, they need fire sprinklers and my friend makes fire sprinklers. So I'll just put the two together. Like I'm helping right now. If that's, if that's the way that his, uh, his mindset really is, and that's exactly the kind of person you don't want in public office, As somebody who doesn't see anything wrong with that. It's the same kind of mentality that leads to the attorney general of Texas suing on behalf of Donald Trump to to you know to try to overturn an election so he just thinks he's helping he thinks trump he thinks that trump got screwed in that election he's one of the people who can sue as an attorney general and he's just helping
1: and and and, and you know i'm glad you brought that up cuz like it, it also kind of you know that same mentality might be you know explain 2 years ago remember when he got in trouble with the texas senate Uh, when Jane Nelson, then, then Senate finance chair, you know, called him on the carpet, uh, because like he had transferred $40 million in his offices without any legislative approval. He just decided to move it around. You know, he said it was to help, you know, like he's just trying to get some pay raises to somebody and, you know, but like, you're not allowed to do that without legislative approval. They could have gone you know, way after him and really punished him. At one point they were, you know, talking about cutting his budget, you know, taking staffers away and all that kind of stuff. They eventually relented. But you see the, like the pattern here. It's like from the story you're talking about through all Mm -hmm. of the, you know, stuff that came out in the general investigating committee to this fight, you know, two years ago over his budget. He does very, like, he just does stuff, you know, and he did like, it's like, there's nothing that says, you know, I wonder if I should do this. I wonder if I should move this forty million dollar without anybody knowing that I'm moving the forty million dollars. And yeah. like and he just won't say anything until he's called out on it. Right. You know, yeah. it's like and that is like it took Jane Nelson to say, you know I'm not pleased. <laughs> right. Like well, she, she never does that in the middle of a committee hearing. She holds right. her card so close to her and like and here she was in an open hearing saying, Ken, <laughs> you basically right. broke the law.
0: <laughs> uh, she was blowing him up. That was that was glorious. I mean, uh, some of the other allegations include, uh, to your point, about just having no scruples about what might be right or wrong or legal or appropriate. One of the allegations is that, on behalf of this developer in Austin, this guy Nate Paul, uh, Paul had apparently some properties that he didn't want to have foreclosed on, and there was um, a there was a, a it wasn't an actual attorney general's opinion. It was called in the hearing the other day in in general investigating, it was called an unofficial uh, attorney general's opinion. And attorney general's opinions, it's not the law, but it's something that is supposed to help give guidance to folks about what the law is. Um, And this was during the height of COVID restrictions. This guy didn't want to have some of his properties uh, foreclosed on. And so Paxton issued an unofficial Opinion affecting people in all 254 counties, by the way, uh, saying that because of COVID, that foreclosure auctions could not happen because that many people couldn't gather in one place. But the accusation was he was just doing that to help his buddy, yeah. right, For not for not having the So again, he's just helping Ken Paxton, just helping. Maybe that could have been his campaign slogan, just helping. (laughs) Chris Hilton from Paxton's office wanted to help. He was dispatched over to the Capitol to try to testify in front of the committee. He did not get to, but he told reporters that all the testimony that we're talking about was just a bunch of lies.
1: It was filled with falsehoods and misrepresentations, and they have never reached out to our office to determine whether anything that was contained in that testimony yesterday was remotely true. The process here has been completely lacking. They deserve to hear, the people deserve to hear, from this office in the context of this investigation. Furthermore, this is an illegal investigation. Any discussion of impeachment is completely foreclosed by Texas law. Texas Government Code 665.081 says clearly that any um, proposed impeachment can only be about conduct since the most recent election. The voters have spoken. They want Ken Paxton. The voters want Ken Paxton.
0: A veteran of the Texas Capitol called the claim that you can't be impeached uh, for things that happened, um, you know, in regard to the timing of an election. Uh, a veteran told me that that was, quote, unmitigated bullshit. Um, <laughs> Governor, <laughs> Governor Pa, uh, pa, pa Ferguson, we go back to the last statewide who was impeached, right? So Ma Ferguson was the first female governor because of this, right? Correct. Correct. Interesting. It's interesting Texas history. Uh, Ferguson was impeached for acts committed before his reelection to office. And there is case law on this. There was a lawsuit about it, uh, that found that that part of the government code 665.081 is not applicable as Paxton supporters claim that he can't be removed for acts committed before election to office. Um, some folks said that it's simply a distraction to be Talking about it that way. Now, if the House votes to impeach, and I should say we are uh, taping the show on what? What is this? Nineteen eighty-five? We are recording the show. We're not <laughs> taping it. Is this on Memorex? We're. Uh, <laughs> we're we'll put it on we're,
1: MySpace we're, later.
0: <laughs> who was the guy on MySpace? The, uh, you know what I'm talking about? The guy who was supposed to be everybody's friend on MySpace. You know what I'm talking oh about? Tom. Remember. Was it Tom? It's some name I, like that. Anyway. I can't even remember. Why would you have to bring that up?
1: It's all blocked out of my memory. So why would
0: you have to bring that up? You know, MySpace is still there. It's just it's kind of like an abandoned amusement park. <laughs> anyway, which I think Facebook's headed that way too. But um, all the young youngsters say that Facebook's for old people. That's what my daughter says. By the way, it yep. was her birthday this week. Happy birthday, baby! She's twenty-two. I'm. Uh, I couldn't be more proud. You got me off on a tangent there. Um, let's. What I what I was going to. I never lose my place, of course. I'm saying that we're recording on Friday because by the time you listen to this, if you listen on Saturday, the Texas House may have voted already on this question of impeachment. It's my understanding that it's going to happen on Saturday, but no uh, timeline has been set as of Friday morning when we are recording. Now, if the House votes to impeach, which is just a simple majority, they need 76 members to vote for impeachment. And Jeremy, you tell me if I'm being fair with this. I think that even before... Paxton called the speaker a drunk that there probably would have been 76 votes to impeach him after he did that there's probably 120 votes or more um, to to impeach I don't know what the vote count will be I'm not going to try to hazard a guess but when you attack the presiding officer in a you know in just a, such a nasty way um, you also turn it into a leadership vote Right, it's it, it, it. You know the the members will see that as something that has to do with the leadership of the house, and and not only the question of what you know what things Paxton did. If you take both of those things in totality, it could be 150 votes. Yeah, I'm sure when I'm sure if the speaker says if he says show the speaker voting I, those words won't be slurred.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, and what a great point. Like, you know, we're talking about people who just voted for the speaker, right? Like these people voted to make him the speaker. He he worked out these deals to get like, you're, you know, what do you think they're going to do? It's like Paxton's attacking them at a time that they're feeling particularly parochial because of mm-hmm. all these fights with the Texas Senate. If you've listened to any of the recordings of these guys, these la- this last in you know, a few days of the Texas mm-hmm. Legislature, these guys are mad. <laughs> the yes. Texas Senate is disrespecting us. The Texas Senate is doing—they're not even reading right. our bills. They're just—they're just, they're just mm-hmm. cutting these. Like all of that was happening all week long, and then you yeah. have Paxton saying, "Oh, y'all elected a drunk." It's like, whoa! It's like, come on! It's like you're just hitting them at a time where you probably don't want to test their. Your parochialism at this mm-hmm. minute. <laughs> this would yeah. not be the time to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Th- this is the part of the session where they would be grumpy regardless, even if some of that yes. other stuff wasn't happening, right? This is the end of the session. This is when it's all, this is when it's all happening all at once. Um, so if the House moves forward with impeachment, with a simple majority vote at 76, what happens then? Well, in these situations, Jeremy, even the veterans of the Capitol have to break out the owner's manual which is the Texas Constitution, and dust it off and, and look at what happens. Um, we know that the Senate would take this up and hold a trial. The Constitution says that the Senate, quote, shall hold a trial about this. That, that means they have to. Um, the timing of it is a bit of a question mark. We're not sure exactly how, you know, how fast that would happen. Again, let's say that the House votes on Saturday. I guess the Senate could take it up on Sunday, but I doubt they're going to do that. It'll it'll probably take a while. Um, It's also not dependent on, I get this question a lot in the last uh, two days. It's not dependent on whether there's a special session called by the governor. That doesn't matter. Um, Even if, let's say the house didn't vote this weekend and didn't vote before the end of session. Let's just, let's just play that out. The speaker along with members, can convene the House for the purposes of impeachment without the governor doing anything. The governor can call them into special session for that, but uh, but they don't need him to do anything to move forward with impeachment. So they can do that. The Senate can act and the governor doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to do anything uh, with it. Um, so who would preside over the trial in the Senate? Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick told Jason Whiteley, at WFAA that he's the guy who will preside over it even though it could be the Senate pro tem uh, I believe um, and I think there are some options on that um, but anyway this is interesting Jeremy Patrick told <laughs> this is a classic Dan Patrick he told Whiteley that he couldn't really talk about it and then went on to kind of talk about it anyway Jason I can't say a word about it I, I, look if would you go to a judge and say judge can you tell me how the case is going to turn out so I, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not at liberty to say and by the way I don't cast a vote, the 31 members cast a vote. I preside over it. But, uh, but uh, uh, we, were, we will all be uh, responsible, as any juror would be, if that turns out to be. Uh, and I think the members will, will do their duty. Jeremy, before he had said anything about it, I heard from a lot of folks who said, well, maybe Dan Patrick will just be dismissive of this. I mean, he and Ken Paxton are sort of the same kind of Republican ideologically, and they ran the same kind of campaigns. They're both uh, you know, big supporters of former President Trump, and Trump has supported them both as well. I find it interesting that Trump has said nothing about this, at least as, as, you know, as, uh, <laughs> as, as we, again, record on Friday morning. I haven't seen one word from president Trump about this. This is the guy. Remember this. We told this story on the show before. Remember that when George P Bush was running against Paxton in the primary and in the runoff, both of them really wanted that Trump endorsement. Of course, Paxton ended up getting it. uh, But the story had been relayed to me that, that George P Bush met with Trump twice. The first time was just to go straight up, ask for the endorsement and he didn't get it. And then the second time, that Bush met with Trump. It was after Paxton had gotten the Trump endorsement. But the question from Bush and the Bush camp, it was this, how involved is Trump going to get in the race? Is he actually going to you know, come down to Texas and campaign for Paxton? Is it basically he's just putting his stamp on him and that's it? Is he going to cut TV ads for him? What is he going to actually do? And it was my understanding that Jeb Bush, you know, his father, the former governor in Florida, wanted to know the answer to that because he was going to be helping round up money for, you know, for George P. Bush. And they wanted to know what they were up against. Well, the story was that that Trump didn't really answer that question about how involved he would get. But what he said to Bush was, you know, "I, I like you, George P. I don't have any problem with you, George P. But Ken filed that lawsuit for me to overturn the election. And so I'm with him. Now, Patrick is not being dismissive of it at all. Uh, Those comments from him to Jason Whiteley on WFAA, sounded like he's taking it very seriously. The opposite of what some folks had thought would happen. So um, it'd be very interesting to see what happens in the Senate. Uh, And this is, again, where you go to the owner's manual, what happens? They have a trial. Two-thirds of senators who are present have to vote to convict for the person to be removed. Um, Paxton would already be out of office temporarily, I left this out. If the House votes to um, impeach, Paxton is immediately out of the game. He's sidelined. He's not AG for a while until the trial happens in the Senate. Um, And all kinds of questions here. Number one, I got this question a lot this week. What does his wife do? She's a state senator from Collin County. Jeremy, I mean, there are accusations of Paxton having a mistress, as we mentioned, and, you know, trying to, you know, line up a job for his mistress and uh, all of these uh, deals that were cut with this developer, Nate Paul, allegedly, Um, even if there wasn't a mistress, how could she be? I mean, she either could be really angry with him because there's a mistress involved, or she could be very much just with him because, um, you know, she's his wife. How does she sit as a juror during a trial of her husband, who's the attorney general?
1: Yeah, good question, right? You know, so so and so when I was when I was three years old, I started taking some notes. The last time that there was a, uh, an impeachment proceeding to kind of give a, get us prepared. So, of course, Thank three you. years old. What else are you going to do? In I Texas?
0: appreciate it. It's a life. So, it's a life of journalism. Yeah,
1: exactly. I, I started immediately, y'all. I really did. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but so, so uh, let's go back to the last time we had any impeachment whatsoever. That was you know, Opie uh was uh, a judge that the impeachment proceedings began with. This gives us a little sense of like how long we might be kind of dealing with this issue. Right? So it starts in July of 1975 is when it started in September, the Senate convened their high court. So, okay, July, September, they didn't finish the impeachment proceedings. Uh, they sustained the impeachment you know, articles in January, 1976. Okay. So you're looking at a, six to seven month window last time and quite a reading, you know, that, you know, you that's so a lot of the hearing I- information from that. And, right. you know, looking at the, you know, there were 16 volumes <laughs> of transcripts with that thing. And, and I want to tell you that one was kind of an easy one. <laughs> there was a right. lot of corruption around this thing. You could see like the the deck was really stacked against this guy. Paxton You know, it's like it feels like this could be a lot more complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know if that how that'll affect the scheduling of things. But again, this is something we could be living with for the next six months. Think about what's happening over the next six months in Texas politics as people in the House are filing to run for Mm reelection, or people who might want to challenge them are filing for election. You know. Same thing with the Senate. There are senators who will be up for mm-hmm. next year's elections who will be filing in November uh, to run for their reelections. And they may be in the middle of also do- dealing with this tax and mess. So that's just kind of give you a perspective. The last time, the only time that you know in my lifetime we've had an impeachment proceeding of a public official by the yep. legislature – Is this one moment? And i that's all we can kind of build off of. That's the only thing we have in the manual of like, well, how does this thing work? Well, 1975, it took us, you know, six to seven months to figure this thing out. Man, Uh, I was a boring uh, kid at three months old. Well, I was going to say,
0: I'm not going to hold you to all those details because those are notes from when you were three years old. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it
1: it got a little sloppy, you know. I was still working on my cursive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um. Reliable sources tell my publisher Harvey Kronberg this hour that um, uh, Ken Paxton's been reaching out to at least some Texas House members uh, to, you know, talk to them about this potential impeachment. Um, has been texting and calling House members, uh, you know, ahead of the vote, uh, which could happen as soon as this weekend. Um, I don't know. Harvey asked the question: Is that jury tampering? He says it's an interesting question. <laughs> we'll see. You know, we don't know you know I maybe mean, just trying here? to help and there's maybe he's just, <laughs> maybe he's just
1: helping it. like you said before <laughs>
0: he's just trying to help this is um, th- this is uh, it, one other thing about the history of that uh, that uh, that impeachment of the judge you're talking about when the uh, articles of impeachment were drawn up this week i was told that the the impeachment document that was used back in the 70s in that case was used as the template for this impeachment document this time around. Um, And the impeachment document that was written back then was written by a state representative uh, who was the father or is the father of um, a current state representative, Terry Canales from McAllen. So (laughs) this, uh, this just doesn't happen very often. And you know, it's hard to say exactly the way it's going to play out. In fact, I should, I should add this in the Texas constitution. It says that the Senate, to a certain degree, has to come up with the rules and the way that they're going to do it when they do it, right? It, it kind of leaves it open to them to do that.
1: Well, okay, and this is amazing to me. You know who does know how this process works? Sinfronia Thompson. She was literally in those hearings. You know, like the first transcripts from that impeachment proceeding in 1975. There Sinfronia Thompson's on that panel. So it tells you how long it's been.
0: Dean Thompson. Um, we'll see how this plays out. I am uh, just fascinated, uh, with, 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 what's happening here. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, Jeremy is Uvalde and the anniversary of what I remember being just a shocking, horrific, sad, awful day. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to put it into words. I don't have all the right adjectives. You know, I, I remember exactly where I was. I was doing some yep. work. Um, And start, started to see this. It was in the after. Was it? It's kind of I'm trying to remember what time it was. It was sort of in the afternoon, uh, early afternoon, when this started to unfold. I want to say it was around one, one thirty. I might be messing that up a little bit. No, that's um, right. But it's it's hard to talk about, and I'm I'm going to get into it here, and um, um I I'll try to hold it together. So I was thinking a lot about this this morning, early this morning. I woke up at four thirty for no good reason. I just, I woke up super early and uh, I like the quiet times around the house when I can just think. And I was thinking about the families, thinking about the survivors, thinking about that community, everything they've been through. I was also thinking about all of the Texans from around the state who just went running to Uvalde to try to help. Who were actually trying to help. And I've talked to folks from neighboring school districts. I've talked to folks from uh, places in North Texas and far South Texas and the Houston area. And whether they were people who were in the medical field or in education or uh, you know, mental health experts, whatever it was, people were not asking, do you need our help? They were just going there to try to help. And this is what people do around here, right? It's kind of our nature. Um, the President Biden um, addressed the nation from the White House this week and talked about traveling to Uvalde, last year. I think he was there on the ground two or three days later, right, um, after Governor Abbott had already been there. This is what uh, President Biden said this week.
1: I realize this is a really tough day for all the families. Remembering is important, but it's also painful. One year ago today, Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, turned into another killing field in America. A few days later, Jill and I traveled there and stood before those 21 crosses outside the school. On each cross, a name, like in these candles behind us, 19 children, nine, 10, 11 years old, and two devoted educators, and 17 more injured. We spent hours with the grieving families, who were broken, and never, ever will quite be the same.
0: I thought this morning, Jeremy, about something that you've said more than once on the show, which is this is not a normal school shooting. And you followed that up by saying it's crazy that we even have to say that, right? Any school shooting should be bad enough. But you had said it's so extra terrible because these are little kids. We have seen these shootings at our high schools in in Santa Fe. We have seen the mass shootings uh, recently in San Jacinto County and in Allen. We saw the mass shooting When a guy drove from Allen, the 12 or 13 hours or whatever it is, to El Paso to go hunt brown people out there, Um, as far as public policy, almost nothing is different. The uh, Republican response to all of this has been to basically have what I would describe as an arms race with people who want to kill children. We're going to arm teachers, arm school security guards. We're going to put more guns into the schools to try to secure them. You may remember this. Um, Anderson Cooper from CNN was on the scene pretty quickly. The national media, of course, descended. And there is uh, a balance that you have to do as a journalist where you're trying to cover the story, but also be respectful of the families who are involved. Right. And this one sticks with me from a year ago. Uh, The father of Amarillo Garcia. Or excuse me, Garza. Amarillo Garza. Got to get it right. Talking to Anderson Cooper. Uh, And she was one of the ones uh, Amory was one of the ones Who was trying to call those police officers Who did not come
1: (laughs) She just tried to call the police She tried to She actually tried to call
0: Uh, uh, Yes I got confirmation from Two of the students in her classroom That She was just trying to call authorities And I guess he just shot her You look at this girl and shoot (laughs) her.
1: Oh, my baby. How do you shoot my baby?
0: This was when we didn't know very much about what had happened. Right around that same time, Jeremy, you remember that Governor Abbott had given great credit to the law enforcement on the scene. And he had said that, you know, the law enforcement officers, they do what they always do, which they run toward danger and they confront it. Well, we now know that that wasn't that was not correct, of course. Um, and I think the police response is a big reason that the story has endured. Remember, at the time, I think it's it's had staying power because um, of it, what people because of what people view as a cover up, right? I mean, we still don't have all the information about what happened that day. One year later, at the time, it was thought by a lot of people that. After you know a month to six weeks to a couple of months, whatever, people would kind of move on from this. And of course, a lot of people have done that, and um, and all of us get caught up in the other things that are happening. It's not that you don't care about what happened in Uvalde, but other things happen; other things yeah, take course. precedent, right? But I, but I, I really have struggled with this. Last week, we um, on the show heard the words of Senator Roland Gutierrez on the floor of the Texas Senate where he sounded like he was going to collapse under the weight of PTSD because he's one of the lawmakers who signed the nondisclosure agreement with the DPS to see all the evidence they have about what happened that day. And someone well, tried to- Let me to, stop you right well, yeah. there because mm-hmm.
1: you, you said a key point, a nondisclosure agreement to be able to yeah. see what happened to these people. Like right. People need to understand like that's the only way they could see this information. They're, they're yeah. elected officials. And they had to sign non-disclosures.
0: Yeah, and I and I should add to that that y- you as a citizen can't do that. Correct. It's that that offer was only made to to Texas lawmakers to sign the NDA to be able to look at all this stuff. So I had some people say that they thought that Gutierrez was kind of play act in there that he's he's you know he's playing it up for the cameras. So I'd like to give you a sense of at least a little bit of what he saw. And heard and this is very difficult to listen to do you remember that congress had hearings on this and i think you made the comment off the air that the congressional hearings uh were probably one of the best and most revealing um uh, venues uh, one of the best and most revealing events that happened after the shooting to kind of let us know what happened uh on that day dr roy guerrero was one of the treating physicians uh, i believe from san antonio um and he was there dealing with the kids as they're coming in right and when he was testifying before congress When he was speaking, he played audio on his cell phone into the microphone there in the congressional hearing room. He played audio of kids who were screaming that day. Some of the parents had recorded it and sent it to him. And I want to tell you, if you've got kids in the car, I know a lot of people listen on the Bluetooth in the car. You might have kids uh, with you. I would say either just turn the show off now or fast forward it about one full minute. I'll wait while you do that, because this is really hard to listen to. Um, He wanted them to know the terror of what unfolded that day. Here was Dr. Guerrero talking to Congress and letting them hear the screams of those babies who were being slaughtered. The following is audio that I was given by a parent of kids from across the room where the kids were murdered. These children survived. This is a shrill screaming of kids trying to get out while their classmates are being murdered. We now know that they were trying to get away from a guy who not only killed all those kids but also scooped up blood from the floor and used it to write the letters LOL on a whiteboard in the classroom. Dr. Guerrero wanted those lawmakers who could do something about gun policy. He wanted them to know exactly what happened to those children. When you see pictures of Amory and her friends on the news, you should know they didn't get buried looking sweet and happy like their photos. Some were missing limbs. Some had holes in their tiny chests. You might mistakenly imagine a funeral where a child lies peacefully in a colorful coffin. But make no mistake, there's no peace in the death of a child by a weapon of war. I'm going to get into gun policy a little bit more in just just a second, but um, here on the anniversary of the shooting, some of the mothers, including uh, Kim Rubio, spoke with our friends at KSAT 12 News in San Antonio this week about how they feel full 365 days after that happened i think in order to move forward you'd have to accept what happened and we have not and will not accept what has happened to our children does it feel like it's almost been a year at this point I i think it feels both both ways yeah it feels like how how is it already a year that it's like an eternity since i've seen her jeremy you've made the point more than once that these families still don't know Everything that unfolded that day, you probably saw uh, the uh, either the special or the coverage of the special on CNN this past weekend where you had some of the families come forward and say that they want all of the rest of us to see exactly what happened that day. Look, I, th- I know that within that community, even within the group of families who were affected, there are different feelings about this, right? There are those who would say, I don't want anybody to see my baby having gone through that. And then there are others who would say this should be like an Emmett Till moment. Right, that, that that everybody should see it, and I have said this before. I'll repeat it. I know people in state government who have seen all of the evidence from that day, um, and one of them said to me that the information, the pictures, the videos, the audio from that day, all of that, that they have said to me it should not be made public because, as someone who had seen all of that, this person was saying that that they can't sleep at night. a friend of mine. They said they can't sleep at night because of what they have seen. And I would say no one should be able to sleep at night until we do something meaningful to make sure that doesn't happen again. It does matter what the families think about it. Of course it does. But there's also a larger interest in making sure that everyone's children are safe as well. And I'm here to tell you, if more people saw what Roland Gutierrez saw, what those lawmakers had to listen to there in Washington, if more people actually internalized what had happened, I don't think a bill to raise the age – for, um, the purchase of certain firearms would have such a difficult time if people were fully informed about this.
1: Well, and, and let me take it a step further, you know, just give me a minute here. So it, yeah. it, what happened, the, the videos and the evidence and all that so here's the sad part. There are 10 year olds who were in that classroom and next door who have that playing in their head every goddamn night (laughs) yeah i think that's the thing that hit me so hard um and i was at my baby's graduation from high school when the news first broke i remember that and i remember you know i'm i'm in the stands watching my baby get to do this and all i could think of were those like kids who like not just the ones who were killed that day, Mm -hmm. but the kids who had to see it, who had to be in that room for 77 minutes. It's like, while the cops were outside, Mm -hmm. it's like what these people are going to carry with them for their whole life. I think that's the thing that's been driving me crazy from the very first day I heard this, which is, the children who have gone, oh my God, my heart breaks for them and their families, mm-hmm. but there's so many more children. Like that whole community went through this. It's like, and the ones who survive, they only survived a part of this trauma. There's another whole part that, like, like I'm afraid people just move on, think, okay, it's about the 21 children. No, it's about Everybody who was in that school that day, the teachers, yeah. the teachers who survived and knew Eva and the other teachers who are gone. You know, it's like they have to live with that. It's like right. I, I dealt with this a lot in New York, and it's like, mm-hmm. and maybe that's kind of what like hits me pretty hard. You know, I covered a lot of nine eleven and the post 9-11 and a lot of the families and the people who did survive. And there's this survivor's guilt piece that is like it is the most complicated, difficult thing to ever try to talk to anybody about because there's no there's no answer. It feels like it's like what do you say to somebody? It's like you just and 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 maybe if we all get to to really understand what these children saw again, children. There's a ten year old sitting in Uvalde right now who. Is going to have a nightmare tonight, still from what happened. And we're just like, we get to go on with our lives and, like, and, and just like, oh, I don't want to think about that right now. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to a show or I'm going to go to a sporting event or whatever. Yeah. Those kids don't get to turn that off ever. And maybe not for their whole lives. And it's like, and, and I think that's the thing, like, you know, why, like, our government isn't like more passionate about this. Like more angry. It's like again, you. I, I understand. I'm not saying you have to do the gun control. I, like mm-hmm. you know, that's another debate altogether. But there's just a compassion level of this thing where it's just like, like, oh my god, our our babies saw this, <laughs> and like, and we're just acting like life goes on. Yeah. And it just it just doesn't go on the same way.
0: Yeah, You mentioned that it took uh, 77 minutes for the cops to come in there. Roland Gutierrez uh, on the floor of the Senate last week did mention uh, that when the cops finally entered the classroom where this had happened, you can hear the police throwing up because of what they saw when they walked in there. And so to your point, there's little kids who had to see that. Um, As far as that police response, we saw the videos of the cops standing in the hallways for more than an hour, afraid to go in because of what? because of the firepower that the shooter had, right? That's that's the understanding we have now. You may remember uh, this guy, one of the teachers, uh, Arnulfo Reyes, uh, who also saw kids being killed, and he told ABC News that the cops abandoned him and those children.
1: I get more angry because you have a bulletproof vest. I had nothing. I had nothing. You're supposed to protect and serve. There is no excuse for their actions. And I will never forgive them. I will never forgive them.
0: How many students were in your classroom when the shooter came in?
1: 11 students.
0: So the shooter killed every single student in your classroom? Yes, ma'am. When the shooter was coming down the hall, what uh, Mr. Reyes had told the students to do was get under their desks and pretend to be asleep. And he laid there as well with them, pretending to be asleep and hoping that they wouldn't make any noise. Remember that what some of the students had said that they were told to do was get behind backpacks. There was, the, the you know, where the backpacks are in the classroom that they should hide behind them so that a guy with a high-powered rifle would not be able to kill them? You tell me how that makes any sense. Now, remember Abbott had uh, at first praised the police for their response, as I mentioned, saying that they acted swiftly to take care of anybody, you know, everybody because that's what police do. But later he had to take that back, of course, and he also, of course, did not take any responsibility for the bad information.
1: I was misled. I am livid about what happened. I was on this very stage two days ago, and I was telling the public information that had been told to me in a room just a few yards behind where we're located right now.
0: I think this, Jeremy, that the governor maybe not only got bad information. I'll give him a little grace on that. Maybe that did happen. But I think that there's also just this template that our leadership has when something like this happens. The first thing you say is something about how you're praying for the families and the victims. And the next thing you say is, it could have been so much worse if not for the heroic actions of law enforcement, which that's almost a direct quote of what Abbott said after Uvalde. And everything we've found out about law enforcement's response in the year since then tells the opposite story. Nothing but finger pointing, cover-ups, trying to blame the local school district police, blame the local police, you know, the border patrol was there, DPS was there, but there were so many officers on scene that the fact that they didn't stop that guy faster, it it just still boggles the mind. Right? That, that when we that we know ever since the Columbine shooting we're going back to more than 20 years ago. The standard operating procedure in the United States is, if there's a shooter at a school, and it's the out of school part that that kicks that kicks the next part in. If there's a shooter at a school, the policy is you sh- find him and kill him on site. There's no there's no trial for you if you're doing that, and the police see you doing it. Right, you're done. And they waited around for 77 minutes, and that's still never fully been explained. A year later, and to your point about people just kind of moving on, maybe they have um but I'm certainly not willing to do that.
1: Well, and, and 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 remember, over 300 police were outside the school, outside of the classroom. And 91 were DPS officers. DPS officers who would have been briefing the governor at that point. They knew that they did not go in. They knew the 91 DPS officers were there and relinquished command and control. They could have easily, like they do in so many, look, anybody in law enforcement knows when the DPS comes in, they start taking over things and it bugs the heck out of people. But here's the one occasion where they didn't. The DPS officers like, oh, we can't go in. It's like they waited outside too. It's like DPS, like I don't think has ever been fully made to respond to, Why didn't DPS go in? Why don't they just say, okay, y'all don't know what you're doing? We are trained to do this stuff. You know, we are one of the best paid law enforcement agencies in the entire country. We are experienced. We've done everything, we've covered so many murders and crimes and shooting incidents. We're ready to go in there. It's like instead they're like, oh wait, no, I'm sorry. The Uvalde Independent School District police officer is the commander on this scene, so we're just going to wait outside for 77 minutes, and then Damn. when you tell us it's ready to go, uh, we'll be there somewhere. We still mm-hmm. don't have their body cameras images right. from what ha- what we have from body cameras are from the local Uvalde police because right. the local government there required it. You know, ma- you know, put it out there. They get all the backlash from you know other you know people involved in quote the investigation is an mm-hmm. ongoing investigation don't put that stuff out the shooter is dead these children are dead right. show us what happened we want to know what do we need to do to fix the dps to make sure this doesn't happen again and the thing is we still don't know because they won't give us all the information it drives me crazy most law enforcement Wants to know, how do we fix this? How do we mm-hmm. get this better so this doesn't happen again? And we have no indication that DPS has gone, oh, whoa, we won't do X and Y ever again because we saw what happened. We don't have that right now because they're yeah. not even telling us what X and Y were. What did they do wrong? Why can't they just tell us?
0: Yeah. The argument might be that maybe there are legal reasons that the uh, body camera uh, you know, video cannot be. Released, But I would say that when DPS is doing tax fund taxpayer funded public relations for the governor on the border, when they apprehend undocumented immigrants on the river, they tweet out the body cam video that day. Yep. Yep. They can, instantly. Yeah. They, they when it looks good for DPS, you get that you get that fucking video the same day. Yep. Yep. Well, look at all the fentanyl we just found. Look at the
1: picture. Look, look at the grainy photo from you know, the border. It's like they can put that out in a minute, but they can't give us any sort of detail about how their officers performed and why. Just give us – explain this to us. We want to know what are we doing wrong that we would have 91 – DPS officers waiting outside while children are bleeding in a classroom with the little girls calling to say, we're in here. Yeah. They heard it. They knew the girl was in there and they still did not go in. I don't get, I know law enforcement and they get pissed off about this. Right. You know, it's like they know that's wrong. They know it's like, what, No human being – you don't have to be in law enforcement. No human being would hear that little girl's voice and say, okay, well, let's wait a little bit longer. There's one shooter. They knew there was one shooter. Go. Sorry.
0: Go get him. No, go get him. I'm just – its it leaves you speechless as far as what happened that day and certainly not an indictment on – as you said, not an indictment on all law enforcement. No, definitely Uh, I've also talked to folks in law enforcement who cannot believe what happened that day and that those guys didn't rush in. Um, I remember the hours after the shooting, there was a, as always happens with this, there's a makeshift morgue that pops up somewhere. And I, if I remember right, it was the civic center there in, in, uh, Uvalde and seeing the images of the parents waiting outside to get confirmation of their children's death was unbelievable. And I, I what the, uh, the line that I read in a news story that sticks with me from that day is that from the street outside the civic center, you could hear screams from inside as a mother would be told, yes, it was your child, right? the, The person would just lose it. And one of those people, uh, is Kim Rubio, who I mentioned before. And in all of the, um, back and forth over gun policy at the Texas legislature, one moment sticks with me uh, from just recently. Um, It was the testimony that parents gave uh, to the special house committee that was considering the bill to raise the age for the uh, purchase of firearms. And of course you have described it, Jeremy, as those families being jerked around by the legislative process without going into all the detail of how scheduling works at the Capitol. I think it's fair to say this. I've, I've done this for a long time. Uh, They could have done that hearing you know, in such a way that those families got to, they would get to, you know, get in and out of there pretty quickly and have told their stories. They could absolutely do that. Yes. They could have a hearing. They could have had an interim hearing last year. They absolutely could have done that. They could have done an interim hearing in Uvalde so that the families wouldn't have to drive all the way to Austin. All right. They could do that. They could have a hearing in February when it's not quite as busy at the Capitol. They would still have to come to Austin, but they could get, you know, give their testimony in the morning and go home if that's what they wanted to do. Or,
1: or imagine so yeah. imagine day 1 of the legislature. There's a, a commemorative, you know, one, you know, day dedicated only to listening to the families of Uvalde so we can kind of get our heads straight going into yeah. this session. So we're not right. just talking about transgender, you know, children for 5 months and not talking about Uvalde.
0: Bottom line, they could have treated those people a lot better. Yes. A lot a lot better. And when people I I have seen people try to make excuses about the legislative calendar and how busy things get, they could have they could have lined that up in a way that would have been respectful to those families. Um, When Rubio testified um, in front of that special committee uh, about the raise the age bill, uh, she compared having to wait to testify to having to wait for the confirmation that her baby was dead. I arrived here today at 8 a.m. And as we've waited more than 13 hours, I'm reminded of May 24th, 2022, when we waited hours to be told our daughter would never come home. I expressed confusion then, and I'm perplexed now. Did you think we would go home? (laughs) Well, I'm glad they didn't go home. I'm glad they told their stories. I'm glad that they were there in the middle of the night, which again, uh, the, the scheduling of that was completely disrespectful to them. But they did get to tell their stories and they did get to move the needle. You know, I was asked by some national publications this week, if any of it makes any difference, all the things that the families have done, does it, does it matter at all? They didn't pass any legislation in the current uh, legislature that, you know, the legislature is just about done now. The, the regular session is for all intents and purposes, for any kind of bill like that, it's over with. The final deadlines for something like that have, we're, we're way past any of that. It's not going to happen this year, but I would say this. The fact that there was a vote in the committee on the raise the age bill is a step forward in the legislative process. I know that doesn't give anybody really any comfort at all, but I do want you to understand that the families did make a difference. Jeremy, on the anniversary of the shooting, I was asked about this. Did the families do anything uh, that, that was worthwhile? And I pointed out that two Republican lawmakers on that committee voted in favor of raising the age for the purchase of these assault rifles. And if, um, it, you know, as, as I'm being asked that on the anniversary, if, if it had been held, if that vote was held one year and one day ago, those Republicans would not have done that. There's in fact, that vote would probably not have been held on the bill. And so these things take a lot of time. I mean, we have a, we have a political culture and a, a political structure in this state, that prevents that kind of legislation from moving forward. I have started to think about it in, in these terms, that our our primary, you know, I say this all the time like I'm being evangelical about it, but that the, the election that matters in Texas is the Republican primary. I'm, I'm taking that a step further now in saying this. I think the fact that it's the only election that matters, that almost nobody votes in, is a corrosive and corrupting thing. The fact that we have, a state of 31 million people spread across 254 counties in two time zones, and only about 3% of the population voting in that Republican primary sets the tone for not just politics but public policy in the state, is corrupting, right? It's how you get one of the most corrupt attorney generals maybe in the history of the United States. It's why common – just basic you know, basic things. I'm not even going to say common sense. Just basic, you know, uh, uh, bare minimum stuff like raising the age has no chance at the Texas Capitol because all of those lawmakers who are Republicans are afraid of their voters and they don't necessarily have to be afraid of them. They just are. It's so untested. They have not voted for anything that could be even called gun control. So how could they have been attacked over it in previous elections to know that they should be afraid of it, right? That hasn't happened, right? That's completely untested. They're just, they're afraid of potentially nothing. It's hard for me to imagine that a Republican lawmaker would be beaten in their primary on that issue only. If they were very conservative about everything else, but on guns, they took one little step forward, I think they'd be just fine. Uh, Senator John Cornyn, I think, would agree. He was just about booed off the stage at the Republican convention in Houston last year. For what? For teaming with a Democrat to try to provide some grant money for red flag uh, you know, programs around the state and that kind of stuff, or around the country and that kind of stuff. Nothing to do with really gun control. Uh, So those people are angry, but it's a small, small group.
1: Well, and another good sign for the families of Uvalde is it's like they still matter, right? You know, so like on the on the Senate floor this week, they 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 gave a spent a couple hours on a tribute to each one of the children who passed. And I thought the part that made me feel so good was that I watched, you know, people like Senator Paxton. Uh, and Senator Alvarado, the tears are still coming. Like people are still crying over these children. That means it's it's not forgotten. It, it hasn't become commonplace to just you know, say, oh, in, in honor of the families of Uvalde and move on. It's like it's still producing a real, honest, raw emotion. And I was, you know, and I, I totally agree with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who's ended up saying that it was like maybe the best, uh, Memorial they had ever had on the Senate floor. It was so respectful and to watch Roland Gutierrez kind of lead it the way he did. he like, he was, and I know take the politics it had, it just didn't matter who was Democrat or Republican. They were all kind of chipping in and like understanding the loss of it all and how real it was. And so the people who said, Oh, Gutierrez is just using this to grandstand or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like you got to watch that. You know, go back and watch the video of that whole two hours of them. you know I watched the whole thing you know uh and, and feel the emotion of it, and you realize no no, none of this is a game y'all that this one is not a game. I know everything feels like a political game, and there's like things like this one is not mm-hmm. a game these are these are these are children there's the children who died in the custody of one of our public schools, you know because of our gun laws and uh, and because of this kid who ended yeah. up shooting them up, you know, it's like, like this, this is not a game. This is real. This is real. It's not just for those families, but like I said, for every single family in Uvalde who like that shooter didn't go through their kid's classroom, you know, they're all living with this too. So it just, it's just not a game.
0: Yeah. Um, I think we'll leave it right there. Um, I appreciate y'all listening to us vent about this. I, I just, um, I can't. It, it's hard to put into words. I can't believe that we are where we are—a full year after that happened—still uh, with so little information about what actually happened, and with almost nothing being different or nothing being changed about what happens in our schools, um, and in all public places. You know, we kind of get. Uh, caught up in the idea that uh, it's a school shooting, and that's terrible, of course. But these shootings are happening everywhere: outlet malls, movie theaters, any place that people gather. And there's just this unwillingness to do anything about it. And it's it's because of what I said. It's because these Republicans are afraid of their primary voters. And I'd like them to I'd like for them to think about the a comparison between how afraid they are of their primary voters versus how afraid those kids were that day when their friends were being killed.
1: Well, and, and, and just to to finish it off, like, and I guess it would, it's even harder because we saw what happened in Florida after Parkland. Um, it's like, and you saw there, Okay. Law enforcement was, you know, forced to pay for their mistakes. You know, mm-hmm. they fired people right after that to take it. The officer who who stayed in the hallway and did not do anything was fired. The sheriff was, you know, under all kinds of pressure. You know, it's like the the Republican governor rate, you know, led the charge to raise the age to buy an AR fifteen. You know, it's just like all we saw all of that happen in a republican state where the republican primary is the dominant vehicle to get elected right. and they were able to do it but here
0: not right and believe me they got plenty of rednecks in florida oh yeah and <laughs> and I'm, I'm and i'm pointing that out to say this uh, once again i'll tell you that after those republicans voted that way none of the Republicans who voted for those new gun laws, none of them lost their primaries in the next cycle. Correct. And, and Rick Scott, the governor was promoted to the United States Senate. After that, and it because was just, of it, that. It was just of it. fine. And it, and, be, and it, right in part because of that, it was just fine. <sighs> Couldn't we all be just fine? All right. However you listen to the show, hit the subscribe button. We appreciate it. Uh, check out Jeremy's newsletter. You can get the link for that. On his uh, Twitter page, it's the pinned tweet there, at Jeremy S. Wallace on Twitter. I'm at Scott Braddock there, where I also have the uh, link to donate to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. You're helping us push past $25,000 now in the annual uh, fundraiser. and We really appreciate it. Scott Braddock.com for that. Um, watch all this impeachment news. It's I think there's going to be fast developments. I, I, I like that as a news term, fast developments over the weekend. Uh, subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time.